0: Gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this intermission Fuds on film podcast. My name is Scott Morris. I will be joined later on by Drew Tavendale and Craig Eastman. But first, a little bit of a heads up on what this is. The main Fuzz on Film episodes will be released on the 1st of each month but we decided that may not be quite enough to hold your attention so we've got a couple of bonus episodes lined up for you each month. On the 10th of each month we will be releasing a DVD commentary for one of the films that we talk about in that episode, something for you to listen along to and have us sitting in your ear hole right next to you. It's like inviting us over, but you don't need to buy the beer in. It's a very economical solution for everybody. Following that up, on the 20th of each month, we are going to be recording one of these intermission episodes, which will basically be a little grab bag of reviews of films that we happen to have seen this month, either new releases or back catalogue stuff, anything that's taken our fancy that month, and we'll give you a lowdown on those. First up, I will hand you over to my compadre Drew Tavendale, who's going to give you a bit of a rundown on Marvel's
1: Ant-Man take it away. After surviving a somewhat troubled gestation, which saw original writers Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright, who were long attached to the film, leave the project and director Peyton Reed and writers Adam McKay and Paul Rudd coming to replace them, Marvel's Ant-Man is finally with us. After having successfully created a technology to shrink a human to insect size, which he used to aid S.H.I.E.L.D. in its early days, a disillusioned Hank Pym locked his secrets away, lest they should fall into the wrong hands. But when Pym's protégé replicates his research, and for far less noble purposes than Pym had in mind, he recruits Scott Lang, a convicted thief, to steal the new prototype. Seems simple enough, but it will come as no surprise that all does not go according to plan, and Scott must become the hero and save the world, etc, etc. While very much a B-list Marvel property, Ant-Man still has the slick production and glossy visuals we've come to expect from Marvel Studios including one remarkable piece of CGI effects work early on that helps later to rest the spectre of Tron legacy. But good as it looks, Ant-Man doesn't have the pull of a big name star or big name character. So much like Guardians of the Galaxy before it, Ant-Man relies on fun, charm and humour and it has these in spades. The pretty much ever likable Paul Rudd stars as Scott Lang, and he has an easy chemistry with his co-stars: a crotchety Michael Douglas as Hank Pym, Evangeline Lilly as Pym's daughter, a wonderful and scene-stealing Michael Peña as his former cellmate. In fact, one of the most successful things about Ant-Man is how relaxed the cast seem, and how much they seem like they're actually having a lot of fun. With four recorded contributors to the screenplay, it's difficult to discern which writers are responsible for which portions of the finished article. It's easy to think you can spot Wright and Cornish's influence, but ideas you'd put good money on the British duo having contributed, like Michael Peña's storytelling with synchronized voiceover, turn out to have come from director Reed. Of course, as a viewer, none of that matters as long as it feels cohesive, which it does. The characters and dialogue feel pretty consistent throughout, and it's consistently amusing, if not always hilarious, though it certainly has its moments. The script also allows for some moments of pathos though these are leavened with well-timed quips which help to keep the tone of the film largely upbeat. Ant-Man also largely sidesteps the pitfalls of the CGI vs CGI snooze fest that mars so many modern action films. As with teleportation in Thor The Dark World and Iron Man 3's multiple and partial suits, inventiveness in the fight scenes, this time with size, scale and Tom's the Tank Engine, keeps things lively and engaging. Where Ant-Man is less successful is when it tries to crowbar in connections to the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, including one substantial sequence that feels like forced, unnecessary fan service. To be fair, the sequence in question is still fairly entertaining, but it does very nearly come with on-screen text saying, Remember this guy? Remember that this is all happening in this world? Remember? These are the most minor of niggles though. Ant-Man is funny, warm and entertaining. And a heist caper is a welcome addition to the superhero movie canon, which, while not without comedy, is often very poor face in earnest. Ant-Man is definitely one to catch. And now I'll pass you over to Craig, who is going to give you his thoughts on Ex Machina.
2: Thanking you kindly, Drew. Now, routine cinema goers will doubtless be familiar with the work of Alex Garland, having written novels and or screenplays for such movies as The Beach, 28 Days Later, Sunshine, Never Let Me Go and 2012's Dread. Ex Machina marks Garland's first outing not only in a writing capacity but as director, and perhaps wisely for a first foray, it keeps the familiar sci-fi territory, though that's not to say that this is a movie on cruise control. Indeed, although Garland chooses a simple setup and somewhat familiar tropes, this is a movie that digs deeply and satisfyingly into its themes in a way that belies its supremely modest budget and a low-key tone. The central setup is of a Turing test, to be carried out at the secluded private residence of Nathan, the enigmatic CEO of the world's largest tech company. The human element in this test is Caleb, an employee selected by Workplace Lottery and whose diligence as a coder is matched only by his awkwardness in the face of what was originally billed as a week's wilderness bonding with his enigmatic boss. Caleb is soon introduced to Ava, a stunning advance in robotics both in terms of physicality and, crucially, cognition, and Caleb becomes increasingly engaged as Ava demonstrates that she may in fact possess more than just a simulated consciousness. Presented in Acts, defined by each day's scheduled session of interaction between Caleb and Ava, Ex Machina is relatively prosaic in structure, choosing instead to focus on character, discourse and conjecture more than narrative distraction, and it's all the more satisfying for it. Garland clearly has faith in his actors, and it's a remarkably assured thing for a directorial virgin to have the confidence to allow their characters to carry the movie without resorting to whiz-bang, FX work and or cheap signposted plot twists. Up until this point, I was unfamiliar with any of Oscar Isaac's major roles, his most recent outing for me being 2012's The Bourne Legacy and the previous year's Drive. His characterization of reclusive billionaire Nathan is cleverly downplayed, beginning in a vein of passive-aggressive arrogance, working the spectrum from there to outright sociopath, albeit minus the scenery chewing one might expect from a less restrained relationship between actor and director. Nathan is perhaps necessarily an impossible character to like, but that Isaac manages to maintain the audience's interest without completely alienating them speaks volumes to what is a deceptively complex and skilled performance. Isaac is nicely counterpointed by Domino Gleason as Caleb, all innocence, awkwardness and inflected with emotional immaturity, arriving at Nathan's secluded high-tech facility both a figurative and literal babe in the woods. Gleason maintains his uh, cast of innocence, while his burgeoning fascination with and eventual concern for Ava leads to an increasingly bold recurrence of verbal sparring with his boss. In his own surprisingly assured way, Gleason proves a match for his new friend-slash-foe, drip-feeding enough naivety into Caleb to make the movie's occasional twist believable, as well as enabling an effective suspension of disbelief on the part of the audience as his interactions with Ava become more personal. And there's nothing artificial about the intelligence with which Alicia Vikander portrays the AI in question. Beyond the initial startling introduction of Vikander as merely a human face and hands on an otherwise mechanised humanoid mesh, the subtlety with which she conveys a mind potentially on the cusp of sentience, yet beholden to a set of mechanical instructions, is wonderfully nuanced and every bit as accomplished as that of her male co-stars. Once the wow factor of the movie's impressively seamless effects work becomes background to the philosophical elements of the theme and plot, Vikander proves herself to be in charge of what is absolutely the movie's pivotal performance, and when called upon seemingly effortlessly summons naivety, wonder, fear and cunning in equally convincing quantity. Much of Ex Machina's thematic content has been explored before, in particular through the works of Philip K. Dick and the translation of his Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep to the big screen in the form of Blade Runner. It's wise of Garland to focus almost entirely on character where that movie dealt equally in parts visual and oral spectacle, for it affords him the opportunity to have a much deeper discourse on the nature of sentience and being. Crucially, where Blade Runner skirted casually around the notion of sexually capable synthetic beings, Ex Machina confronts the topic very much head-on in an assuredly mature fashion. The dynamic of what would otherwise be a standard session of interrogation between Caleb and Ava is altered irrevocably in the wake of Nathan's revelation that his AI is both mentally and sexually capable, indeed able to find pleasure in physical interaction just as any human. Ava's subsequent turning of interrogation upon Caleb evokes an entirely new dynamic almost upon a dime, and leads to further revelations of a more sinister agenda Nathan may or may not be harbouring. On Twist 2, Garland proves himself a step ahead of the expectations of this otherwise cynical reviewer. Pulling the rug out from under what I had guessed within minutes of the film's opening would be its big surprise. Rarely have I been so pleased to be wrong. Which is not to say Ex Machina is perfect. While its characterisations may be accomplished, this reviewer found that the dynamic between Ava and Caleb was far more engaging and, ironically, more believable than that betwixt the human guinea pig and his boss. The clinical atmosphere of the research facility setting, all frosted glass panels and brushed aluminium keycard access, is also often equally as oppressive as Nathan's more extreme bouts of behaviour. And although both are fitting for the theme, and in the case of the location perhaps the budget, Neither serves primarily to engage the audience, and occasionally, in fact, alienate. Fortunately, the intelligence of Garland's script, largely bereft of the kind of clunky pseudo-scientific mumbo-jumbo so beloved of ADD Hollywood, shines through and elevates ex machina well above the level of your usual low-budget sci-fi potboiler. If this is any indication of Garland's competence as a director, we ought to be looking forward to what he has to offer in this capacity for some time to come. Now, if I can just convince Ridley Scott to step down from Blade Runner 2 And with that, it's over to Scott
0: Where do you take a film franchise when there's nowhere left for it to go? back to the start, I suppose. At the time, I described the series' long-awaited journey into the post-judgment day chaos in Terminator Salvation as a horrible, disjointed, often boring mess of a film, and if anything, time has been even less kind to McGee's disastrous outing than I was. So, if any franchise was ripe for a reboot, it's this one. Certainly more than, say, the Spider-Man franchise. Again... So, this brings us to Terminator Genesis, or as it's localised for PAL regions, Terminator Mega Drive. This isn't exactly a reboot, although if you're not paying much attention you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was one while watching it. Unfortunately for Genesis, it's not the sort of film that's worth paying a lot of attention to, so any attempt at subtlety or nuance in this regard is going to be ignored in favour of robots panelling each other. Fortunately, it hasn't bothered with the subtlety or nuance, so I suppose that's all worked out nicely. The bones of Genesis ought to be familiar enough to anyone with a passing familiarity with modern cinema. We start off in the post-nuclear apocalypse world where the remnants of humanity stand against the murderous robot Terminators and with Jason Clarke's John Connor at the helm, are about to win. While the killing blow to Skynet happens off-screen, Connor and his trusted lieutenant Kyle Reese must now take out the facility where the robots are hiding their ultimate weapon, Reese now embodied by the thus far unimpressive Jai Courtney. They're too late, sadly, as they find a Terminator unit has been sent back in time to kill John's mother before he was even born, Skynet as always being a subscriber to the Great Man theory of history. To stop him, Connor sends Reese back in time, with orders to track down Sarah Connor, played by Game of Thrones' Emilia Clarke, and safeguard her from the clanking assassin. Immediate signs that you're no more in the murderous robot version of Kansas is delivered in the shape of a liquid metal T-1000 alike pretty much immediately stalking Kyle, while a freaky Uncanny Valley CG 1984 version of a young Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator enters battle with an aged 2015 era arnie, ending with Sarah Connor firing a fatal round through the young robo-interloper with an anti-tank rifle in stark contrast to the mousy waitress we were told to would be waiting for us. For reasons that, I suppose wisely, are largely left unexplored, the timelines have gone super mental or possibly we've crossed to an alternate universe, but regardless it would appear that all bets are off. It's still down to Kyle and Sarah to stop the rise of Skynet, headed by today's Arnie. Apparently synthetic robot flesh was created to age as well, which is one of the less preposterous ideas the film throws out, Uh, so uh, it would appear that all bets are actually very much back on again. This time around, Skynet is deemed to have been born from the latest multi-platform operating system, the titular Genesis, designed to link your life together across all devices, but which will instead go Bandit, Reynolds-style, starting Armageddon and such. This time, Skynet is aided by a robotified hybrid John Connor, which might have made for an effective little mid-film reveal if it hadn't been shown in the trailers. And... So it goes, taking a good amount of inspiration from Terminator 2, which doesn't seem like the worst idea in the world. It's largely a collection of chase scenes and robots clattering into each other while casually destroying the set in the process. And, at least on that level of spectacle, it delivers solidly. Unfortunately, in a year when any action film has to be reckoned against Mad Max Fury Road, it's going to come across as a poor relation, but that can't be helped. What could have been helped is the chemistry-free performances from Courtney and Clark. They're not exactly bad turns as it goes, but they're supposed to be falling in love with each other over the course of this film, and it barely seems like they're in the same film. Now, this isn't exactly a romantic comedy here, so it's not quite a film-sinking disaster, but it does mean that when the action slows down, it's often quite flat. Thankfully, Arnold proves to be a saving grace in his role as Sarah's Guardian, with some great deadpan delivery and still looking enough like the action star of his prime to make the excursions to CG believable. Jason Clarke does reasonably well in his dual role as humanity's saviour and the film's primary antagonist, putting a turn that's, if not quite over the top, is at least lining up ready for the order, which suits the nature of the role quite well. While in any other film it would be worrying if the most charismatic performances came from characters that were supposed to be emotionless robots, at least here it makes enjoyable a film that could quite easily have, have went all salvationy. Instead, it's merely about as good as the third outing. A definite cut below the first two, but decent enough. This is actually a hell of an achievement, because the story that's linking the impressive action scenes and admittedly slightly nostalgia-tinged Arnie turn is a slice of fourth-grade fan fiction that has no business being turned into a movie. It has all of the appearance of complexity without the benefits of being satisfying to unravel. It's just a big wet noodle mess of contradictions, inexplicable tangents and fan service that's nonsensical to folks who have been following the franchise and completely impenetrable to newcomers. Given that one would assume at least part of the point of this pseudo-reboot is to bring on board a new generation of filmgoers, whose previous exposure may well be limited to remembering the slating that Salvation took and listening to Christian Bale's rant on YouTube, I can't help but feel that, story-wise, this is a failure on all counts. There's a fairly reasonable argument for saying that this doesn't matter. Given that this is a film pitched on spectacle and the story is little more than a transitioning device between various forms of action set piece, I hate giving films a free pass in this, particularly given that the rest of the series, even Salvation, managed to keep their stories straight and I do not want to underplay quite how stupid this plot's time malarkey is. It makes even the worst Doctor Who episode seem like a logical exercise in storytelling. It's most accurately described as a two hour long ass It's an embarrassment to all concerned. And yet, I have to concede it doesn't actually matter all that much, just as our mildly disinterested leads don't make much of a dent in the reasons why we signed to watch this. No one, at least no one with an ounce of realism, was going into Terminator Genesis looking for a narrative masterclass. We expected a reasonably paced, effects-driven summer blockbuster, and that's exactly what's been delivered. It's entirely adequate, but nobody's going to get too excited about adequacy. I award this MEH out of 10. So there you go, I hope you've enjoyed that little intermission podcast from us. Uh, we'll be back with the full episode on the first of the month, however. Until then, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do, either through the website at fudsonfilm.com or hit us up on the Twitter account, that's at Fudzonfilm, or even the Facebook page at facebook.com slash film. We'd love to hear from you, if you've got any feedback at all, please do right in with that. You can also email us at podcast at fudsonfilm.com. Any feedback would be gratefully appreciated, and likewise if you want to leave a review on iTunes, we'd love to see it. So, on behalf of Craig Eastman and Drew Tappendale, I'll say goodbye and we'll see you on the first. Ta-da!